So you're working in the daytime, and you know night courses run from like six to nine at night. The arrangement was to call him after a class to let him know how it was going. So nine, nine fifteen, in those days you grabbed a handful of quarters and put them in a payphone. So I'd dump some quarters in the payphone, and uh, Cesario would say after about two minutes, "Oh, why don't you come up here? It'd be so much nicer if we could talk face to face." It's like almost 9.30, hour and a half drive. I drive up to Rockport. We'd talk till all hours in the morning. I drive back, get a couple hours sleep, go to work. He was teaching too, so he wasn't getting much sleep. So why all this extra effort? He wanted to see if he could depend on me. He wanted to see if I was willing, if I was willing to go the extra mile. He knew that this was, he's testing people. He was an incredible psychologist. You've got to understand, he did therapy in the midst of life with people. Welcome to Beverly Talks, the podcast about neighbors talking to neighbors. How well do you know your neighbor, Lucia? Uh, I don't know all my neighbors, but I do know a couple. Well, I don't think it's a big expectation people have of one another when you move somewhere. You have to get to know your neighbor. That's true. You can be hiding in your house forever, watching TV, and just Instagramming <laughs> your Isolated. world. Isolated, yeah. What would Mr. Rogers say, Allison? <laughs> <laughs> that we should be building community by getting to know our neighbors. Well, it's a good thing that that's what we're here to do. Hey, everybody. Hi. <laughs> good morning, America. You have America. to welcome your listening audience to your mood. Yeah. It's What's our my mood, mood today? is called Nidika uh, Coffee. We all have bad sleep. Yeah. Okay, we're a little tired, but we're always happy to record uh, our next episode of Beverly Talks. The podcast about neighbors talking to neighbors. This is Lucia, and I'm sitting here next to Michael and Allison. In this episode, you'll get to know Rick Heath. Rick is a Beverly resident, and he dedicated most of his adult life working closely with the late Cesario Pelais. Cesario was the founder and owner of the longest-running magic show in the world. Rick Heath met Cesario in the early 1970s, and worked closely with him during the 35-year run of the magic show. For those who don't know what magic show we're talking about, let me tell you. There was a time between 1977 and 2012 when people from all over the world traveled to Beverly, Mass. to attend a magic show. This show was called... Le Grand David. Thank you. Le Grande, Le Grand David. Le Grand. David. Yeah. I'm sure most people say it, said the Le Grand David. Le Grand David. <laughs> like <laughs> That's that. That's how they say it around here. Yeah. But I think in the stage they call it Le Grand David, a spectacular magic show. This show earned, uh, like for real, a world Guinness record for being the longest running stage magic production of all times. Yep. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, if you didn't attend to that magic show, you probably think... I mean, it's not a big deal. A magic show consists of a magi magician using visual tricks to make an object disappear. Well, that's what I thought too. Uh, but after meeting Rick Heath, I realized that 
I had missed a magical experience. And you're probably wondering, well, what, what does that mean? What's a magical experience? Well, we get to the answer of that. Why it was so amazing. And Rick explains a little bit about it because he worked for Cesario. Cesario was the mastermind of the show. Um, even though this episode is about Rick Heath, Rick talks about Cesario a lot uh, because Cesario was a powerful man in a human way. He left a profound positive impact in probably all the people that met him. And little did we know, we thought we were just going to hear a story about a magic show, <clears throat> but it's really this guy's philosophy on life, this communal living situation that these people had, the, you know, the vaudeville kind of history that was behind why the show was the way it was. Yeah. So it was pretty deep. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like a really good kind of philosophical deep thinker too. He is. Yes. And it, co it comes out throughout the whole interview like he's talking about him and then he naturally is drowned to let's talk about theory and concept mm -hmm. and like psychology like like there's a moment he talks about types of leaderships and mentioned many psychologists by name all right and I forgot about that how Cesare was you know a psychologist yeah yeah he was like a friends with Maslow that guy who coined the kind of yeah the hierarchy of needs Maslow yeah, yeah. uh yeah it was I think at one point another psychologist visits the the um, theater and experiences a show and he's like oh every all the psychologists psychology theories that uh that we talk about with Maslow are implemented in this show yeah, oh, wow. he applies all of these psychological theories in the show in order to have the maximum maximum effect on the audience. Mm -hmm. He like, you know, approaches it in a scientific way. And apparently it worked. I mean, people came from other countries to see the show. <coughs> so, which makes me, of course, I'm sure you're thinking the same thing. Yep. Why I didn't go <laughs> to that show. I go to the show. Right. And uh, I think there were a lot of wow. people that they didn't know what they were missing. And now it's gone and we only have stories. Okay, but thankfully, Rick Heath has a lot of stories, so we're gonna catch up. We're gonna help everyone catch up with what was this sh magic show all about. Uh, we met with Rick on May 10th of this year, 2019, at 13, a very nice coffee shop in downtown. You'll uh, listen to a little bit of a background noise, you know, it's a coffee shop, so a lot of people are in there. He would have welcomed us in his house, but he said he had so many cats that it would not work. <laughs> <laughs> so at first, we're going to listen a lot about the magic show. Um, he is very generous about all the stories. And well, I think half of his life was invested in this show, so he has a lot to say. And at the end, we're able to get a little bit more on who is Rick. Um, but it's really hard to get because he's so much invested I mean, the, the show was kind of his life, too, so. Mm -hmm. It was a so-called magic show that, as one eminent magic historian, Walter Gibson, who wrote The Shadow, and I mean, this fellow, uh, in a letter he wrote to Cesario said, he was in his 90s, probably right before he died, he came to see the show, and he said, I've waited 80 years to see Le Grand David. And he's seen all the great magic shows. And he said, he, end the, he ended his quote with, it's magical in its entirety, from beginning to end. 
It's a magical experience. It's not just tricks. Um, it wasn't the kind of show where there's an MC that comes on stage and says, hey, and our next great act is Johnny so-and-so, he's gonna do such and such. It wasn't that at all. It was from beginning to end, a continual flow of costume, scenery, lights, stage magic illusions. They used to call them um, full evening magic shows back in the, in, in the days of the touring magic companies that Cesario was influenced by. But I think that sums it up nicely that it was magical in its entirety from the time you walked into the theater. It was an, it was an immersive experience and as uh, another stage magic historian said, after a while you just sit back and using your word, you are immersed in the experience. You stop trying to figure out how things are done. You just sit back and you just smile and enjoy the show. The analogy I would use is to create a magical environment, when someone walks in to whatever place it might be, they have to leave the streets. That's why there were long naves and cathedrals. So by the time you entered inside, the outside world had vanished. You know, Disney did a great, you know, does a great job of that. When you enter the Magic Kingdom, you've, for, you've forgotten, the, you've for, yeah, you've, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean, you go, by the time you're there, you've forgotten about everything. That's, that's how it was. Um, the whole is, you know, you can break it down into the sum of it, uh, into the parts, but it was a whole experience. People would say to Cesario, why don't you uh, release videos of the show? Because it's not the same. You had to be there in the theater. Why don't you take the show on the road? We got invitations to say, you know, I say we, Cesario, through him, invitations to take the show everywhere. I mean, one invitation, very, he was seriously considering was to take it to Spain. But what are you going to do, take the bricks and mortar with you? You had to come to the theater and be in the theater to see the show because the atmosphere, the environment in which something takes place conditions the experience. We could not have done the show any other place. It wouldn't have worked, in my opinion. It just wouldn't have worked. I mean, we did segments at the White House, things like that, but that was, you know, those are offers you can't refuse. But it, it was being in Beverly, in the building, creating the experience on our own stage, performing with friends. And we started, we started getting to know each other three, four years before we even had a theater. So by the time we stepped on stage, we were friends. It was, it was a flow. It was something, something rarefied about it. I mean, here's an analogy. I mean, these are analogies that have occurred to me. I mean, I'm, and I don't think it's, I'll say it anyhow. So why the Madonna and child is the Madonna holding the baby Jesus? because that something needs protection. That essential something, that spark of goodness, whatever needs protection. The show couldn't be done on the streets. It doesn't work like that. You have to have the environment that protects what's going on on the stage. You know, that, that something essential. Beyond, beyond, beyond intentional. Cesario is off the charts. Uh, to add more into that magical experience, I read that the magical experience started the moment a person entered the lobby. 
Um, the performers would greet you in costumes and perform magic tricks or even like a puppet show. All this would happen in the lobby before the actual show would start. And like visually, you would see the ceiling tiles were hand decorated and the walls were adorned with giant posters for the magic show. And Rick Heath is an important like piece of that because he was the main artist and he painted or did most of that work. How did, how, do, you, do you know how the show ended up in Beverly in the first place? Oh yeah. He talks about that. Yeah, you asked a little bit about how they end up there and he said he didn't have a lot to do with choosing the theater, but this is how it looked everywhere. Uh, but as an outsider, he knew a lot. He knew that Cesario contemplated many locations. Among them were spaces in the North Shore Mall, in Lynn, and in Boston. Um, at the end, he said, I mean, he kind of concluded that Cesario bought the Cab Theater in Beverly because it kind of fit the bill. Uh, it was like affordable. It had a theater, I'm sorry, a real stage, which is what uh, Cesario really wanted. The, the area is safe for families to visit at night, but also um, close enough from Boston uh, so that people can drive to to the theater. Yeah, there were many th- many factors that that Rick thinks um, Cesario contemplated before choosing the place. Um, yeah, I don't remember the specifics, but learning more and more about Cesario and how he operated, it was probably a very well thought out, you know, plotted piece of property that was yeah. perfect yeah he seems like a very methodical guy cesario hmm. like when you start to hear rick talk about the like perfectionist nature of like him checking everybody's work and you know he definitely had a vision and was like you know sure that that vision was going to be executed by the people that worked for him mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter what yeah but not in a bad way I would imagine if you're like a magician, there's not really like room for like error. You know what I mean? Like you have Mm -hmm. to be that kind of like. But it was more the psychology thing that had more influence, it seems like to me. Yeah, I think we both got the message that it seems like Cesario Pelias was really good at creating a sense of family among the workers uh, while also demanding them to perform to their highest potential. He was a very strong personality, it seems like, Cesario. And he wanted the people that worked for him to buy into his philosophy. Mm-hmm. And Rick talks a little bit about how he like vetted people in order to work for him. And, you know, it was the same really well thought out kind of psychological approach to hiring people. Yeah. And so he really thoughtfully chose the people that worked for him and created this, you know, kind of communal work living space mm-hmm. well let, let's listen to the next clip where he um, shares a little bit about how um, Cesario kept everyone as a family but he has an interesting story to start somewhere during the middle of our run I don't remember exactly when it was November it was close to Thanksgiving this magician who was truly weird showed up at the Cabot Theater Cesario wasn't there I don't know if I called him or somebody else did to let him know this guy was there at the door and he could only talk with Cesario. He had these ideas that were going to revolutionize magic. Now, that's called being delusional in psychology. You know, but he couldn't tell me. No, I can only talk with Cesario. I got to talk with Cesario. Cesario said, put Rick in charge of him. When Cesario put you in charge of somebody, it meant you dropped everything and you took care of him 24-7. I mean, this, he volunteered me for things. <laughs> 
honest to God, but when you love somebody, you go along with it. Well, anyhow, he said also, bring this guy to Thanksgiving dinner. For those of us who had family in far-flung places, we'd get together down at the Larkham, and we'd have Thanksgiving dinner there. Um, you know, or Christmas or whatever, because we had additional shows. So, man, I'm trembling about bringing this guy to Thanksgiving dinner. And meanwhile, he's talking my ear off about he can only talk with Cesario about that he can't tell me. And it's true. And I'm saying, no, he's more than doing, he's psychotic. Well, anyhow, um, I brought him to Thanksgiving dinner. Right in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner, he asked Cesario the following question. Cesario, for you, over all these years, what's the most important thing? Cesario used one word, togetherness. And it's like, wow, what a great question. <laughs> From this guy who's a lunatic. <laughs> but what a great question. Cesario's used one word, togetherness. A little bit later on, well, I said, and we're, every, you know, we're sitting, yeah, we're, we're all together. And a little bit later on, I said to Cesario, you know, I mentioned it, you know, the word togetherness, and I said, so why a magic company in particular? And he had often said, you know, we, can, we could have done a restaurant or a car wash. Wouldn't have made any difference. That's just, to use an analogy, the rock that you push from point A to point B, where you need a bunch of people to push it. You have to have something to do. You have to have a project happened to be theater for Cesario because that was in his background. Well, I said, so why a magic company? He said, magic is a way to do theater, which is a way to bring people together. And later on he said, basically, what makes a true company is doing things together. That's what makes a true company. My surmising is he lost everything in Cuba during the revolution. I mean, he would have lost his life if he hung around for another two days, probably. He lost everything, came to this country with a shirt on his back. And he created a family. The Magic Company was his family. That's what it was. I mean, he started, you know, the way he would put it was, you know, I started with zero when I came here. I mean, literally zero. He had nothing. Neither did anybody else that we met that were his, uh, what do you call it? People that did theater with him in Cuba, they all came with zero, shirt on their back, came over in a boat. Sometimes they had to try three or four times to get over here. <laughs> the stories are amazing. Well, um, it was a sense of we. And the definition I gave these magicians, uh, my definition of magic is, magic is the movement from I to we, or from me to us from my and mine to ours. It's, like it, it, I mean, we are, we are here together right now. You know, that's it, we're here together. God knows what's gonna happen, but we're here together. Sufficient unto itself. You don't have to try to be anything, try to do anything differently. Just let it be sufficient unto itself. You know what? If we're happy, it's enough for me. It's something similar, I don't know if you know the, the coffee shop over there, What's Brewing? Yeah. So the two people that own that, Kevin and Lindsay, said something very similar about how they build their team. Yeah. It's more like, you know, a family that they build. Yeah. And, they're, and they take care of each other. And they take care of each other. And I think the people in Beverly appreciate that kind of community they aspect. So what's the definition of home? Oh. <laughs> when you take 
full responsibility for where you are at the moment. This is home right now. Any place in the world can be home. You take responsibility for it, you have a great affection for it, etc. You know, you take care of things. You make, you're home. You feel comfortable. I, I, it's just uh, really lovely. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the that Cesario said togetherness was most important mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. the home is where you take care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that, you know, Cesario doesn't live anymore. And then you have Rick, his former co-worker that it's goes to a coffee shop and talk to us for an hour and a half. And it's like an advocate of all what Cesario taught him. And I, I, I thought that's, that's precious. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Cesario clearly had a huge impact on mm -hmm. his life. Mm hmm. Yes. I think he mentioned it too in there. He's like, I don't know what I would have been doing now if if I hadn't met him. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and and he'd feed that need that he had to like think and question and learn about like human potential and psychology and mm -hmm. Cesario kind of filled that gap very nicely. Uh, but also he created a family for him and for everyone that worked there. Apparently everyone felt like a family and I I don't think it's in the clips that are coming, but he even shared how they, there was a point when they rented a house close mm. to the theater, uh, or they bought the house, um, yeah. so that it worked as a daycare for the people that worked oh, wow. at the theater back in the 70s, 80s. Like, isn't that like, I mean, I wish That's employers awesome. would do that today. Yeah. You know? Like, okay, awesome. I all my employees, I want them happy. And he knew he had young people that was having children and he wanted to facilitate them working in the theater so he had this it's like a traveling troupe of gypsy performers or something like yeah. that you know yeah and, and that they feel like a family it. which is crazy that's magic in itself <laughs> right. it really is that's but you true. know what i mean like creating yeah. family like a a chosen family <laughs> it's amazing um and so so throughout the interview i don't know how you felt but i felt like the more he talked about cesarean the way he did things i was like oh my god like this is another level of um being on a, a an owner of a business that i that i don't know and he eventually shares the story of how um they met hmm. well how he kind of formed the company like the how the way the way he found people so it's also an interesting style it's very strong personality this cesario mm -hmm. i wonder what i wish I, I could have met him i know you tell us what <laughs> i thought so the whole time so upset. In the next clip, we'll listen more about how Cesario formed this big family, the Magic Show crew, and how he used his knowledge in psychology to get the best out of people while also running a company. Yeah. So how did Cesario form the company? Because that has kind of a corollary, corollary to all, all this. Like I was saying, he started a number of years before when he was teaching at Salem State. I hate to use the word recruiting because it wasn't, he was looking for what he might call good material, so to speak. And the, the way I met him at that time was through a friend. And Cesario was living up in Rockport. The friend arranged for me to meet him. So a friend arranged I would meet Cesario. This is again, October, early November, at the tip of Bearskin Neck in Rockport. You know, you know Bearskin Neck? So not much happening out there in the middle of November. 
I had heard about Cesario. He would he had been running a place up in Dublin, New Hampshire called Cumbrace. It was on the cutting edge of the human potential movement. Cumbrace wasn't quite it for him, what he was looking for. Well, anyhow, he's teaching at Salem State. It's arranged at six o'clock at night. And I live, was living on the South Shore, south of Boston. Left work early, drove up there, got there like two hours early. I have no idea what Cesario looks like. So it's starting to get dark, it's wet, it's cold. I mean, just <laughs> deserted. Six o'clock in the dot, this man comes walking up to me. Cesario, he says, I'm Cesario. I said, I'm Rick. Turned around, started walking. Went back to his apartment off the center of town. We talked till the wee hours of the morning. So I'm working, I gotta be at the school system, I'm working at like eight o'clock in the morning. So I get like an hour sleep, go, go to work. But the, arra the arrangement was, um, he said, either that time or some, maybe a few days later, said, so what are you gonna study now? I just finished a master's degree. No intention of studying, he said, theater. So you're working in the daytime, and you know night courses run from like six to nine at night. The arrangement was to call him after a class to let him know how it was going. So 9, 9.15, in those days you grabbed a handful of quarters and put them in a payphone. <laughs> seen a payphone around anywhere? So I'd dump some quarters in the payphone and uh, Cesario would say after about two minutes, oh, why don't you come up here? It'd be so much nicer if we could talk face to face. It's like almost 9.30 hour and a half drive, I drive up to Rockport, we'd talk till all hours in the morning, drive back, get a couple hours sleep, go to work. He was teaching too, so he wasn't getting much sleep. So why all this extra effort? He wanted to see if he could depend on me. He wanted to see if I was willing, if I was willing to go the extra mile. I wasn't the only one, I mean other things for other people, but he knew that this was, he's testing people. This is, he was an incredible psychologist. You gotta understand, he did therapy in the midst of life with people. Nobody would even notice it unless you had eyes to see. Cesario probably was the most eminent psychologist under the radar in the United States at the time. He never invoked, I mean, at Salem State, he had to use the title Dr. Pelias but he never invoked his title. It was always Cesario. Mm -hmm. He would sit in the lobby of the Cabot Theater. If you wanted to talk with him, you know, Cesario, you got a minute. If you missed him, well, that's the way life goes. Mm. You know, where were you when he was there, you know? He's kind of humble, too. It's kind of interesting. He could fill up a room with his personality, but underneath, he knew how to play roles, so to speak. He could be the absolutistic, what, what, what would you call it, authoritarian personality, like we're gonna do it my way or it's the highway with people, or hey Rick, you know, it's a great idea, just, just run with it. I don't even need to see it, just run. You know, he could, he... So he knew he, how to get stuff out of people then, or like, you know... Kind well, of, in psychology, he always talked about three kinds of leadership. There's authoritarian, there's democratic, and there's laissez-faire. Neither one is, of the three is any better than the other. It depends on the circumstances, how to use them. Exactly, and he knew how to use them very, very well. Um, 
But the way he formed the company was, number one, well, by building relationships. There were no tryouts, there were no, what do you call them, auditions, no job applications, no nothing. You know what, if it was for you, you'd start to find out. Like the Peace Corps, you select yourself in, you select yourself out. Um, so he would say to people, a lot of Salem State students, we're all younger, and he would say, look, in a certain sense, none of us have any money. You know, we're driving around in beat up Volkswagens and stuff like that. So he said, why don't you get houses and live together? So five, six, seven of us, we got a house near the college on Linden Street, right off Lafayette Street. And we shared expenses and saved a lot of money. And also, you had to get along with people. <laughs> What's the hardest thing in the world? Uh, exactly, other people. <laughs> yeah. Other. Yeah. Smart guy. Other other people, the hardest thing in the world, to live together with somebody. You start to rub each other the wrong way. Well, we find ways to get along. So in the previous clip, Rick Heath shared how Cesario, his boss and the owner of Le Grand David Magic Show, encouraged the theater crew to live together. That way they could save some money and also learn how to get along. I feel like it's such a, you know, perfect situation to have that guy, Cesario. It's, you know, in the 70s or 80s. Thinks it's probably a little bit less likely to happen now, you know? Mm. I was just thinking, I remember when he was telling that story about, you know, essentially his job interview was at nine o'clock at night in yeah. the middle of Rockport on a cliff and <laughs> meeting this guy. I'm like, that would never happen now. And, you yeah. know, I can't imagine a woman doing that. Yeah. But he was preparing people for what they were in for. Like, yeah. if this isn't cool with you, then... Right. But you can, can you imagine that happening now? <laughs> be like, I'm yeah. suing you. <laughs> I mean, if <laughs> someone tells me in the middle of the night, if someone tells me I'm doing a podcast that will reveal people's souls in history form, and I'll be like, okay, I'll meet you at 8 p.m. <laughs> I'm just making that up, but you know, yeah. like, it seems like Rick was very passionate about human potential and, yeah. and like the mind, and Cesario had to something to offer. I think it's different when it's like an artistic endeavor too. Like yeah. theater is very different and you have to trust the people you work with and be vulnerable with the people you work with and mm. there's a whole other layer there <laughs> <laughs> what what did cesario teach at salem state did rick psychology say? oh he, he taught psychology yeah. yeah also he shared that um he asked everyone in his company to like read a lot like he at one point he said he demanded intellectual rigor so he, mm. he made everyone read like maslow books and all kind of psychologist books yeah, I, know. I can get behind that. Yeah, it's, it's oh, intense to me. I don't know. Like, you really demand, he demanded a lot of his people. And a, yeah. apparently, the people that stay there wanted that. Mm -hmm. Like Rick, he yeah. wanted to be pushed to his highest potential. And so the next clip, um, he talked a little bit about that, how Cesario pushed him. And now that Cesario's not here, um, Rick is thankful that he knows how to push himself. When I met Cesario, I knew in five seconds, this is till death to us part. And that didn't mean just when he died, you know, you, you jump ship, so to speak. 
It means his, this was his thing. Take care of it right to the very end. You put it to bed, you can go to sleep at night, you know it's well taken care of, you did everything humanly possible, all that. That's how you, to me, that's how you live life. How did I figure out, I won't take any credit for this at all. Because I was a tough nut to crack, as they say. And Cesario would get on my case something bad sometimes. If I screwed up, big time on my case. Best thing that ever happened to me. Because, and I mean, his expression was, I don't know if it was an expression in Peru, but in, in Cuba it was, there's no hair on my tongue. It might be a variation of that, but it meant bang. He never held a grudge. And he would say after something, now how quickly can you bounce back? Wonderful, learn how to bounce back quickly. So you get knocked down, you hit the mat, how quickly can you get up? In one sense, the secret to bouncing back quickly is cut the self-pity. Stop feeling sorry for you, oh, poor me. Nobody likes me and nothing's going my way and this is a, you know, blah, 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 and whatever the self-pity is. Nobody understands me and I try to tell people. You know what? It's, come on, bounce back, you know? And I'm, I'm, you know, maybe not so much now, but I, I was not immune from self-pity. I could pity myself big time. But, I mean, this, this was the the education we were receiving. He was a teacher. I was gonna become a, I was gonna say, I, I was gonna become a priest when my first girlfriend decided to dump me. <laughs> you know, I mean, talk about self-pity, going to a monastery for, <laughs> no, not quite, thought about it. That's like, that's what, no, no, no. That's what self-pity is, you know? It's like, oh, you know, you wallow around in your own misery. How, how quickly can you bounce back? Yeah, I think another value I learned from Cesario is um, he wrote on, he used to come back from Salem State. I'd work in what was called the painting room. I'd be working on a poster. And when he'd come in, he'd sit in his chair. He said he found it really relaxing. You know, this would be like after he read the mail and saw the bills. And <laughs> so he'd come up there and then 10 minutes later he might say, let me see what you're doing. Put the put the poster on his lap and he'd look at it. If we were in good shape, he would say, I think we're on the verge of a masterpiece. Good news. If we weren't, the worst one was when he'd say, let me see the paintbrush. And I, I'd, I'd be sitting there like, and he would take the paintbrush and he'd go, that's not, it. and I would be, and, and I would, and I would be fuming. <laughs> He oh. was like, you can do better and now I'm scratching your work. Precisely. Like he believed in me so much and he pushed He never gave up on me. Never gave up was on me. Was there anybody from the people that he kind of chose that really didn't appreciate that type of um, leadership? Or some, some, some people didn't feel like they were treated all that well at times. You know, and... Uh, Everybody lives their life. Some people, you know, it's like the kids start growing up, they got to put them through college, they got to do something else. You know, people would come looking for jobs. We didn't have big bucks to pay some, that wasn't it. You know, if, if you really needed a job that paid really, really well, go work in a bank or something.
But well, the, to continue that story, there's one time when I had probably gone to lunch. I don't remember the exact circumstances. But there was a note slapped on this poster I was working on. And it said, Rick, stop immediately. This is less than what is creatively possible. Do, this is less than what is creatively possible. I stand to probe it. Do nothing till you see me. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, what's going on here? Well, I truly don't remember what the issue was. I don't remember how we resolved it. But that statement, this is less than what is creatively possible, always stuck with me. I kind of flip it now a little bit to do what's creatively possible. So if you just kind of take a look at that picture there, uh, the, you know, the one with um, right on the cover, this is a piece, this guy here. That is a piece that I did for a collector out in Chicago. Um, it's called the Thief of Baghdad Illusion. I probably made 37 cents an hour on that. I mean, honest to God. It took forever. You should see the insides. The whole inside is decorated. It's kind of a, a Middle Eastern design. Um, it's the second one I made. I made one for Cesario a long time ago. But if you look at, this is all handmade, one of a kind. There are no others like this. That's what I had to do. Or else I couldn't, I couldn't send it to him. It stands like about yay high, you know? And it's an illusion. It's got to work. And it had to work in his situation, not just on a stage, but he has a little parlor with little magic theater. So it has to work when people are really close to it. So all this stuff went into it. Um, he was showing us um, a picture of, I don't know how to call it. Like it, For someone that doesn't know anything about magic, it looks like furniture, but it, you can actually make tricks in it. But it's completely painted by hand. Um, okay. It's very like detail on the. Well, you know, you you've never seen a thief of Baghdad <laughs> box before. No. <laughs> no, what well, is? You not. haven't lived. <laughs> it's just very detailed painting. Looks he like a little mini desk or something like it that. It looks like, like that, but you can make tricks. Legs and like a little tabletop, but there's like false fronts on it, and you know, I guess gotcha. it's made for mm -hmm. the specific illusion that they created he was saying that it's a it's hard to do because i mean not only the painting that takes for hours but also like the, the the client that was asking him for this particular product uh was going to do the tricks in front of people like you know very close so they had to be perfect so the people could not see that the trick gotcha. or the illusion but they were pretty amazing looking they really detailed it looks like some yeah. old Persian it artifact or something it, like, like if you tell me it was a hundred years old in terms of like those things are not made anymore i would yeah. totally believe it because nowadays i don't know who paints like that in such a detail yeah um so yeah but I, I, to me that the part was important I, I'm, for me personally because he talks about like not having self-pity and like bounce back and i remember listening and thinking oh i, I didn't have anyone like that in, in my life like it would be nice to have that reminder so I, at least the weeks after that interview with rick Every time I would be like, oh, why does this happen to me? I would remember. <laughs> a whole like, week? Yeah, more than a week. I was like, okay, no self-pity. Like, other like that doesn't bring any value to move forward. So that it was very helpful to learn that from, from Rick. You're listening to Beverly Talks, the podcast about neighbors talking to neighbors. Most of this episode was about 
Rake's experience with Cesario Pelias and the magic show. Now we're gonna shift a little bit into Rick's personal life, where he grew up, what's his opinion about childhood, education, and marriage. No, I was born November 2nd, 1946, Brockton, Massachusetts, Goddard Hospital, 1146 at night. I know that, I think that's on my birth certificate. Um, I went to the Hancock Elementary School in Brockton Heights, which was a, a red four-room schoolhouse with six grades. First grade was always separate. I think second, third, and sometimes it was third and fourth where they doubled up in one room. So it might be first grade sec separate, could be second and third together, and then it could be fourth grade, and then fifth and sixth the principal always took. So it was like a neighborhood schoolhouse. It was the best because there were about maybe, I'm gonna say 120 kids maximum. And by the time you got to the third grade, you could ride your bike to school, you got an hour for lunch. There was no cafeteria, no nothing. You get an hour for lunch. We'd ride our bikes home like crazy. You get like a peanut butter sandwich, go out and play. We actually had recesses in the morning and the afternoon. Ride our bikes home, you know, and about the only thing you couldn't do in the schoolyard was throw rocks at each other. <laughs> or throw rocks at the bee's nest. That was about it. But we never took books home. We never had backpacks. I mean, you know what? We played. Which is what kids are supposed to do. You're not supposed to start when you're four years old worrying if you're going to get into Princeton or Harvard. And hauling backpacks or books home when you're six years old. I mean, I was in education, I know what it's not, and it's none of this stuff that they're doing nowadays. That's not education, it's something else. I could go into that forever. So I went to the Hancock School, and when I walked into West Junior High School, which was big, I was overwhelmed. It's like, oh my God. You know, we never changed rooms. Now you gotta change rooms, and you got a home room. And so really overwhelming for this naive kid. I mean, I was naive, you know? Um, never been married, was not in the cards, <laughs> it, it would have been a disaster. Somehow I knew it down deep, disaster waiting to happen if I decide. And, and I've never missed it, it hasn't, it, it's like it wasn't in the cards, but it's, it's hard to explain when you know, there were, there were several possibilities. It wouldn't have been fair to the other person. It just, it wouldn't have. There are so many fulfilling things in life. You know, and I, I have friends that it's like, they just knew they were gonna get married at a certain point. No, the, 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 the first grade readers were Dick and Jane. It was like, you know, Dick, mom, you know, mother, father, Dick, Jane, and Spot was the dog, yeah. Mom was, you know, in the pictures in the book, mom is on the doorstep of the house with her apron. She's been putting her muffins in the oven or something. <laughs> and dad is going to work with his briefcase. And man, and this is, you know, and the, the TV shows were like Father Knows Best and things like that. Yeah, these Leave it to Beaver. And, you know, the dad was always cool, calm, and collected and could solve the crisis in the family. And mom always would answer the front door. She had a little apron on in her dress and she was doing housework. And like he was saying, these, and you could take home economics or shop. 
in junior high school. You take the regular courses, but home economics was sharp, because girls were supposed to, or and then the business course, you could take shorthand or typing for girls. Yeah, and, and her dress, I mean, the dress was always clean press. Well, every, every culture has its conventions and norms, and to a certain degree, they're necessary, but you gotta find your way through that. And you know, and it, it's like, thank God there are family structures and everything. I'm not saying, I mean, otherwise it'd just be like global tribalism or something. But yeah, you know, then I went, then we, Brockton High School was a dump. So I didn't want to go to Brockton High School. I knew it was not a good place. So thankfully, my father by that time, who had been in World War II, both my parents were in World War II. Yeah, they were both in the military. They thought it might work well if we moved to a little town called Marshfield on the South Shore, which is a beautiful town. And that time was only 6,000 people. It was a nice little high school. And, uh, and it just seemed um, kind of like it was meant to be or something. So I wound up playing baseball and basketball and, you know, again, the American schoolboy package, you know? Well, one of the things Cesario said, and I think I mentioned it to you, a child, when they're vulnerable, needs one person behind them. Totally, 100% that affirms their right. Nope. They're very emotional when I say this. Nobody should have to justify their existence on this planet. Nobody should have to. Part of that is from one, one person standing behind that individual forever. The rock. So, you know, when you hear somebody say something like that, it's like, wow. This person has an understanding of what human nature is all about. I think maybe if I could, you know, you asked me, what was I looking for? Maybe somebody who really understood human nature. You know, because everything else seemed partial, seemed fragmented. And the thing about togetherness, why is that so important today? It's really simple. There's only one problem in the world. And this comes from this, this dude, Krishnamurti. And one of the talks he said something like, there's only one problem in the world today, how to bring people together. Everything else can be reduced to that one problem. How do you bring people together? He could do motivational speaking, this guy. I know, totally. seriously. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, he's very passionate about all this. And um, I, I love when he said, um, no one should justify their existence. I know. Of, yeah, oh I know God. that. And I love that he says, I get emotional when I say this. Because, you know, it's nice to see uh, he has lived so many years and then he has a certain things that move him and yeah he's not afraid to be sensitive yeah it's nice i like that yeah yeah and it, it's good to think too like when he said that i mean i guess you felt the same like being a mom is like okay do my kids feel like they have yeah. to justify their existence seriously oh my god yeah so when one of your children comes to you and they're older and says i'm gonna f join the circus because <laughs> i found this guy with a really great personality <laughs> and we're gonna do magic together you have to say okay yeah. That's great. I support <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Whatever he wants to do. <laughs> I like what he said about education, too. Where he yeah. was like, I studied education, oh and I know what it isn't, and that yeah. is not education. Right. Like, yeah, he he, yeah. Well, he said, like, he used to go to school, and there were no backpacks. Mm -hmm. Like, wow. Like, now it's all about, like, you have to be successful. You have to be successful. 
and back then apparently he experienced what it was just to be a kid with no worries going home for lunch and yeah what is that yeah this one's awesome yeah so well thanks now Rick. some kids have to eat lunch at 10 o'clock in the morning because that's yes. when the lunch shift yep. starts yep. <laughs> there's no break for anything or like me sometimes we're gonna have their breakfast in the car because we're mm-hmm. late and one day morning. he's like, why? Why do we have to have breakfast in the car? I want to sit down and eat my breakfast calmly. And I was like, okay. God, that That's was why I was asking week. if Matilda looked okay when you saw her camp this morning. Because that was this morning for me. I'm like, I'm going to be late. <laughs> Here's your food. <laughs> I've definitely eaten cereal out of a plastic bag on the commuter rail more than <laughs> once. <laughs> yeah. But, well, it, it was refreshing. Um, so for all parents, I hope they don't feel bad with this. Audio. I hope they feel good. And um and for and if every... you do feel bad, stop the pity party. Stop the pity party. <laughs> Nobody wants a shame spiral. Pick yourself up. Pick, yeah, bounce back. Bounce back. <laughs> thank you, Rick. It was an honor to interview you. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Rick. And thanks for telling us a lot about Cesaria Pelais. And reminding awesome. us that it's not that bad. Yeah. Get over it. Yeah, get over it, people. <laughs> bounce back (laughs) for those who want to learn more about rick and his work please visit his website at www.magicianwithapaintbrush.com if you like this episode or want to learn more about the neighbors living around you please subscribe we believe everyone is interesting and everyone has good stories to share if you live or work in Beverly, please reach out to us at www.beverlytalks.com to schedule an interview. Your neighbors want to know about you and what you care about. All unedited interviews will be permanently stored at the public library, and your friends and family members will be able to access it anytime online in the future. We encourage family members to request to be interviewed together so that they can preserve their interactions and voices for future generations to enjoy. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of the Beverly Cultural Council and Mass Cultural Council. We want to say thanks to Beth Cam for letting us record the commentary of the episodes in their studios. And a special thanks to Robert Dokes, the podcast expert here at Beth Cam. All the music in this podcast was brought to you thanks to freesound.org. More details on the music credits will appear in our website. The intro song that we use in the po- this podcast is called Pistachio Ice Cream Ragtime and was created by pianist Lena Orsa. Thanks for listening. Ciao. Okay. I'm going to now. Beverly talks. Beverly shouts. Beverly <laughs> chats. Beverly whispers. <laughs> is that a song? I don't know. It's mouth words. You're, you're an artist. I'm exhausted. A performer. <laughs> you're a performer. <laughs>